The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very good morning, everybody. A very warm welcome. This is Squawk Box and these are your headlines. Theresa May offering MPs a series of concessions on her Brexit deal, including the tantalising prospect of a second referendum. This in a final throw of the dice as the British Prime Minister attempts to get Parliament's backing. Reject this deal and leaving the EU with a negotiated deal anytime soon will be dead in the water. And what would we do then? Wall Street rebounds as the U.S. eases restrictions on Huawei while the Chinese telecom giant launches a range of new smartphones in Europe. Xi Jinping warns of a new long march as the U.S.-China trade war heats up while China's ambassador to the U.S. says Beijing is ready for more talks. And with just about 24 hours to go before polls open in EU elections, we're live in Brussels, London, and here in Bari, where Italy's Deputy Prime Minister Matteo Salvini tells us his campaign has not damaged the relationship with his coalition partner. There are too many things to do, like the fiscal reform, the education reform, and the justice reform. I go on, nothing is going to change. But let's kick off our coverage this morning here in the UK. The pound jumped briefly against the dollar after Theresa May unveiled her new 10-point Brexit deal in a last-ditch attempt to sway Parliament ahead of next month's vote. Among the biggest concessions made by the British Prime Minister is the chance for MPs to vote on holding a second referendum. May also offered fresh guarantees on the Irish border and a vote on a temporary customs union. In her speech, May said said MPs have, quote, one last chance to deliver Brexit. We all have to take some responsibility for the fact that we're in this impasse. And we all have a responsibility to do what we can to get out of it. The biggest problem with Britain today is its politics, and we can fix that. With the right Brexit deal, we can end this corrosive debate. Theresa May, well, opposition Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn says his party will not back May's new plan. It's basically a rehash of what was discussed before and it doesn't make any fundamental moves on market alignment or the customs union. The Prime Minister has already indicated she's going to leave office. Many of her own MPs have already said they cannot support the bill. I can't see how it can get through Parliament anyway. No, we'll not be supporting it the uh, Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn. Well, let's get out to Steve, who's on a wonderful uh, uh, venue uh, just across from Parliament here in the UK. And Steve, you've got a gorgeous shot there this morning. But when we look at uh, what Theresa May has put on the table, it just won't fly at this point, will it, with uh, most of the MPs who've, uh, even in her own party, taken against the new plan? 
Do you know, Jeff, I've been looking ever since, and, and just to give viewers a bit of a backdrop, you and I were discussing, and quite honestly, and I think earnestly yesterday, the fact that whether this was worth having a British um, outside broadcast about the European parliamentary elections, because those MEPs potentially weren't going to be there for a long time, and actually the major parties, Labour, and especially the ruling Conservatives, hadn't put much effort into it. Spin forward a few hours, and suddenly Mrs May uh, has really upped the ante. Now, whatever else you think is going to happen in the next 24 to 48 hours, uh, there's going to be very swift developments here in Westminster as well. But absolutely right, Mrs May has chucked a final throw of the dice at this, and we really do believe this is her final throw of the dice, because, of course, she's already spoken to Graham Brady, who is uh, one of the lead backbenchers of the chair of the 1922 committee, uh, about her exit process, whether or not she gets her Brexit deal through. So what she's done is she's come up with a 10-point plan uh, called the Withdrawal Agreement Bill to put before parliamentarians possibly the week of the 3rd of June, which is a very busy week anyway, of course, because Mr Trump uh, is over in the United Kingdom. We have the 75th anniversary of D-Day uh, commemorations in the UK, uh, across Europe and in Normandy especially as well. So it's a very packed agenda anyway. So finding the parliamentary time would be very difficult, A, to debate this, given the fact that MPs going to recess from the 24th, uh, and B, to try and get the vote through. But as you quite rightly say, many parliamentarians coming out against this already. Let me just very quickly talk about some of the key points in here. Uh, guarantee the Commons a vote on whether MPs would hold a referendum or whether the country would hold another referendum on her deal. Uh, vote on different customs union offerings as well, which is a key point and a real problem for many of the harder right Brexiteers of her own party. Uh, and legal guarantees about the Northern Irish backstop uh, and about legislation on workers' rights uh, and indeed environmental standards. They are some of the key points there as well. But as you say, uh, everybody seems to be coming out, former allies, sometimes allies, wished for allies uh, and others as well, and saying they just don't like this. Nigel Dodds, the DUP Westminster spokesperson, who of course the DUP has a confidence and supply agreement with the Tories, uh, say there are fatal flaws retained in this. Uh, damning comments from David Jones, the ex-Brexit uh, minister, who said this is desperate, deluded and doomed. More conciliatory Tories, such as Zach Goldsmith, says it is a convoluted mess. But his leadership contenders uh, and the likes of Boris Johnson and Dominic Raab, of course, both former cabinet ministers, the former being a former secretary uh, of state, uh, former foreign secretary, the second uh, being the former Brexit secretary. Well, this is what they both had to say. This is directly against our manifesto, says Boris Johnson. I will not vote for it. It breaks our clear manifesto promises. Uh, that's what Dominic Raab says. And Mrs May would have expected to lose some on the right of her party as she moved to the centre, trying to find consensus, trying to get the numbers right in her numbers game. But unfortunately, as you heard from Mr Corbyn there as well, who called it a rehash, she is not pulling in the kind of numbers she needs from the centre, from her own party, and of course, from other parts of the political establishment here in Westminster. This will probably go uh, in a speech to Parliament after Prime Minister's questions today. But what is interesting is also I understand there is a 1922 committee meeting slated in for 4pm in Westminster behind me where MPs will discuss the rules about you no know, confidence, the rules about challenging Mrs May as well because she defeated uh, back in mid-December uh, a Conservative bid to oust her uh, as the leader as well and that meant she couldn't be challenged for another year. But there are uh, Twitter comments galore and comments 
in, in analysis pieces saying some Tories are trying to change the rules so she can be challenged again, so she can be ousted immediately and get someone else in, which, which could uh, lead to a whole domino effect. And just to leave this prospect with our viewers, it leaves everything still on the table from a general election to a new Conservative Party leader uh, to, of course, Brexit to her withdrawal agreement bill actually getting through. I mean, that is a prospect, despite what we've said as well. So every option still remains on the table. I understand Brussels is exasperated. Uh, not the only one, Steve, I think, at this point. But, hey, uh, we'll come back to you a little bit later on. Uh, thanks for now. Uh, ben Habib, the MEP candidate for the Brexit Party, will join Steve down on the riverbank, as will Jan Rostovsky, the MEP candidate for Change UK. We're live in other locations across Europe as voters gear up to head to the polls in European elections. Sylvia is in Brussels for us and Willem is in Bari. Sylvia, this is the final countdown before a media blackout, but it's also a crucial window where events can swing in your favour or derail an entire campaign. So just give us a perspective from Brussels in this crucial time frame. Absolutely. Now we're just about 24 hours away before the first voters head to the polls. This will happen in the Netherlands and the UK. These are the first two countries to vote in the European elections. And then this will continue throughout Europe until Sunday night. And that's when we'll find out the results for every single country. Now, the biggest issue in these elections is really the rise of populism, is the, the surge of these nationalist parties across the EU. And yesterday, Today I interviewed one of the vice presidents of the European Commission, Jurki Katainen. He said that he is not just worried about the rise of populism. He is also worried about the links between these nationalist parties to Russia and to President Putin. Let's take a listen. Five years ago, we had only populists who were simplifying complex issues and offering easy solutions to complex uh, problems. Uh, people were tired for uh, economic crisis or financial crisis, and there were there were there were tendency to understand easy solutions. I understood this uh, to a certain extent, but now um, some of those parties, but also newcomers, uh, have uh, adopted more nationalistic approach, and um, basically it means that they want to weaken uh, and fragment uh, the EU. And some of those have also very close connection to Russia, to, to President Putin. So Russia has uh, obviously financed some of those parties. They have interfered to our democratic processes, for instance, referenda or uh, national elections, in order to weaken uh, the EU and in order to create division between the people inside the country. So. That's why the phenomena, nationalist phenomena in Europe is very dangerous. And, and having said all this, it's also worth recognizing that even if nationalists won uh, more seats, they are a clear minority in the European Parliament. So we have a couple of uh, governments uh, who are representing nationalist view, but they are still in, minor in minority. 
So nationalist parties could take up to 30% of the total seats in the European Parliament. This is according to various polls. So this is indeed not a majority, but it could be a blocking minority. So these parties could actually prevent some legislation from moving forward. Now, the face of this nationalist threat to the EU is in Italy. That's Matteo Salvini, the, one of the deputy prime ministers. And that's where Willem Marx is right now. Willem, I know that you spoke to Matteo Salvini yesterday. What did he tell you? Well, Sylvia, he was down in this port city of Bari in the far south, a long way away from his political heartland in the north of Italy, around the city of Milan. But he was here campaigning alongside some of his candidates for the European parliamentary elections, essentially repeating some of the messages we've seen him deliver all across Italy in recent months. And that's really focused on trying to change the EU from within. What we'd heard for many years in the past was that the EU was broken and that Italy should consider leaving it altogether. But clearly, indications in national polls here have shown that Italians aren't very happy with that concept. And so what Lega, the League Party that Salvini heads, have done, they've tried to change that message to say that we need to reform the institutions from within. They're looking to be essentially one of the largest political parties from all of Europe inside that European Parliament, with maybe a couple of dozen seats versus their existing six. And while he was down here in Bari, I asked him about the impact that this campaign has had on his relationship with his counterpart, that's Luigi Di Maio, and the five-star movement that he heads, because, of course, those two parties are in a rather complicated coalition government together, and we've seen a lot of criticism sniping from both sides during this campaign. Here's what Salvini told me in response to that question. We go on. This vote is about Europe, to change Europe, to change banks, agriculture, borders. Nothing is going to change within the Italian government. I just hope that after the election, our relationship with the five-star movement will be less confrontational. But even if I win, we won't ask for more ministers. We are not going to change anything. You wouldn't try to change the contract between your two parties? There are too many things to do, like the fiscal reform, the education reform and the justice reform. I go on, nothing is going to change. Karen, I have to tell you, that was delivered with a bit of a nod and a wink. He laughed when I mentioned the idea that there could be some damage to his relationship with his counterpart and with the Five Star Movement. But in fact, one of his own candidates for the southern region of Italy I spoke to just before that rally, she said that she did expect there might be some changes to the agreement between the two parties because it would depend on whether there was a shift in the power dynamic, the balance of power between the two parties during these votes. And of course, you must remember, last year during the elections, it was Five Star that got more votes than Lega. And yet Lega over the last year, and Matteo Salvini in particular, they've managed to leverage that minority position, taking control of a lot of the key ministries here in Italy and taking control largely of the political agenda across the country. Willem, thank you very much. That's one of the fascinating aspects about these European parliamentary elections, their ability to, to disrupt domestic politics. Uh, I want to bring in Christopher Granville on the point, Managing Director of EMEA and Global Political Research at TS Lombard. Uh, the debate it comes to two different sides. How big European parliamentary elections have a disruptive force at the European level on some sort of concerted action to, to fight some of the reform processes that have been stalled, any big crisis that may crop up, but also the domestic ramifications if we're looking at fresh elections in certain countries like Italy. Just give us your takeaway messages. Well, I think to pick up from your point of what Willem was saying down there in Bari, that the difference this time is that the European parliamentary elections uh, were always traditionally about domestic politics. 
no, voters just took it, made, took these elections as another opportunity to express their view, their protests, they didn't like their government, and so on. Um, the European Parliament in Strasbourg and Brussels, well, they're not going to do very much. What does that mean? The difference now is that you get that domestic angle, um, and I think, by the way, that uh, uh, of course Salvini would say that that the Italian governing coalition is going to survive these strains. But I think it's it's true. I mean, not, neither of them have any any. Uh, uh, interest in, uh, in bringing that to an end, very much including the Five Star Movement. But now the difference is this. At the European level, this national politics is bubbling up for real. Why? Because there are real powers there. Uh, it matters to everyone. So I think this talk about nationalists and, and Eurosceptics misses the important point. Uh, sure, uh, these political forces don't want federalism or United States of Europe, but they don't want to bring the European House down. Uh, Nigel Farage's Brexit party in the UK is a complete outlier in this respect. Um, they don't want to have anything to do with the EU, but Salvini, uh, his counterparts in France, Marine Le Pen in Germany, uh, they want to get their hands on the European levers, not to bring the house down, but to make the house work for them. So this national politics is bubbling up now into what used to be the sterile world of technocrats and experts and legal, and legal people uh, in the parliament, in the commission, in the European Council of Ministers. Uh, it's getting messy. It's, the, the politics is coming home. So when we, when we talk about Grexit or Italian exit or Frexit, this is all nonsense as far as you're concerned, that in reality none of these countries actually are veering towards a breakup and a departure from the bloc. Absolutely, Jeff. And it's not just me, some talking head, saying that. Just quote the people. Marine Le Pen's no longer National Front. Now it's called the National Rallying Party. Uh, they, the, previously, leaving the euro was a formal uh, item on the platform uh, with a lot of talk of Frexit. Now it's... Uh, we want to get into uh, power in Europe. We want to change the mandate of the ECB. It should have a mandate like the US Federal Reserve with a dual uh, target for employment as well as for price stability. Uh, fiscal rules to be completely relaxed. Uh, this is a completely different uh, approach. Uh, they are going to try to get power in the European system, not to bring it down and to break up the European Union. UK is marginal and outlier. So. When we look at the, the process of the uh, election for Parliament and we analyse the result early next week, um, what should we be looking for to give us a clear indication for the direction of travel, for the reform of the institutions then? Because there, there will be some of our smart hedge fund audience out there who are trying to figure out the clever trades around certain parts of the yield curve. Well, I think that... Uh when I talk excitedly about you know, politics bubbling up into the, the European level, the parliament itself uh, has limited powers. Everyone knows that. But uh, they are real enough. Uh, they have to approve uh, the nominee uh, put forward by the uh, governments or the, of the member states uh, for the post of president of the European Commission. Uh, and if, in effect, uh, as well, and they have a veto on all uh, primary legislation. And you know, nothing else is going to happen if there's a huge majority against it either in the parliament, such as all important for financial markets, far the most important thing, uh, the decision on the new president of the European Central Bank. Now, uh, the, uh, as it stands, the majority of the old centre-left, centre-right stitch-up is going to disappear. They had a majority in, in the present parliament of over 400, so 750 people there. 
So the arithmetic was that 376 you need uh, to have a majority. They're going to get to 311, uh, centre-right, centre-left. Now there's a new sort of liberal bloc uh, with uh, new components in that, like uh, Emmanuel Macron's party in France. Uh, and they will have probably 100 seats according to most consensus projections. So if you add them onto the old centre-right, centre-left mainstream, you get up above 400. But uh, yeah, that's already three people, uh, three big groups. Uh, the chances for fragmentation and not agreeing are quite high. In the, and outside, you've got all these anti-establishment challenges. Uh, everything is going to be very fraught. Whether the, the member state governments will be able to get the, the new appointments agreed by the autumn, I think, uh, is far from certain. Let's just look at it through a lens where the audience might be familiar with some of the decision-making. And you know, Brexit is the one that jumps to mind, where you had to have the remaining 27 member countries all deciding to agree an extension to Brexit. There's been other situations, you know, the, the bailout of certain countries, banking bailouts, whether it's Greece to, to Portugal. The decision-making here is an issue, isn't it? Because if you start to have a, a protest uh, government uh, or, or parts that have a decision that's making ability that's very different to how we've seen it before, sure. you're not necessarily going to have 27 or 28, depending on how many member countries are voting down the track. You're not necessarily going to have them all voting on the same page in a crisis situation. And that's not a known risk for markets, isn't it? I think I think it is, and the again, it's important to stress with this European Parliament we're all thinking about uh, this morning and this week, that even if the Parliament doesn't have formal powers uh, to change anything, you know, fragmentation and strong voices and majority motions would have a strong political impact on all these things, as you say, Karen. The Brexit extension. Uh, judging from what we're hearing this morning about Brexit, uh, we're just going to get through to the chaos in the UK. We'll go through until October, and then there'll be another question, and then uh, the uh, the question of um, how Europe will. Uh, decide to act on the US-China, uh, on the, the tech war, uh, the question of Russia sanctions. Uh, the changes in Ukraine uh, could create huge political questions for the EU. Already the EU is divided over Russia's uh, readmission de facto into the Council of Europe. So these are you know, political questions which, uh, which obviously have um, varying degrees of importance for the economy and financial markets, uh, but all of them affect that in, to some degree uh, and in some, in some angles. So you know, this is it's real politics. The old idea of the old European technocrats, the Troika, going down to Athens, handing out, telling the Greeks what they have to do, um, I think that's, that's the old days. This is now um, uh, much more robustious, much more noisy. So Christopher Granville, thank you very much for coming in and uh, giving us the line on um, these parliamentary elections. Um, we're going to uh, wrap up on that and move forward. Coming up on the program, US markets rebound as Washington eases restrictions on Huawei. Stay with us. We'll have an update on that story when we come back. A decent rebound on the street. The Dow claiming back its losses for the last couple of sessions. Uh, fairly strong, 197 points added in session. But even though you saw fairly decent green and percentage gains for the S&P and Nasdaq, still uh, in the red after the two days of losses that we saw on the street. The Nasdaq are picking up 83 points or more than 1%. Tech and well and truly back in the game. Investors showing some relief about the three-month reprieve granted to Huawei and some of its services and activities. Google reinstating those services for the next three months. So chip makers are part of the rally that you saw stateside. 
putting uh, gains of uh, up to 2.9% on some of these stocks. That for Micron, one of the stocks that was hard to hit. Uh, the other big ones to watch, Qualcomm, almost 1.5%, and Intel, just over 2% firmer. So investors are trying to just lean back onto the positive side, but I do wonder whether some of that is vain hope because it is only a three-month extension. Huawei is talking about maybe just using their own chips in the mix here, and um, unless there's a trade resolution. Got to say, we're right back to how we felt about 24 hours ago around yeah. the Huawei story. Well, absolutely. And the story seems to be deepening around other Chinese technology as well, doesn't it? So the, 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 the front is broadening at this point, it seems to me. And, and uh, as the, um, uh, the onslaught of, of, of fresh targets appears for Washington, at this point, it seems to me Beijing is in no mood to back down. So I, I don't see any quick resolution on this so far. For me, one of the issues around the chip makers, too, is that you do have a transformational phase coming with 5G. Brand new chips that's going to have to go into devices, not just smartphones, but the Internet of Things. So it's a huge development phase for chip makers when they've got significant uncertainty. Selling to one of their, their key uh, customers, Huawei, effectively uh, shows a massive cloud of uncertainty for them. What would have been a decent revenue stream to invest in? the future. Yeah, I mean, the markets seem to be rather relaxed, don't they, about the prospect of uh, serious damage in this area. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.